Tomorrow is Labor Day, so, uh, so I guess you guys are the ones who didn't go on vacation, huh? Because I, uh, I read online that uh, about 40 million Americans went on vacation this weekend. It is the sixth highest travel weekend of the year. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to skip ahead in one section in Ephesians. This week we would have normally come up on the section that deals with marriage, but we're going to tackle that next week when we have more people here. And we are today going to skip ahead, and in honor of Labor Day, we're going to look at a section of Scripture which speaks specifically uh, to the grind, right? To Labor Day and this idea of work and the grind. You all know what the daily grind is, right? We all have it. Your alarm goes off in the morning or your kids wake you up at some ridiculous hour before the sun's even come up because for whatever reason, small children don't understand that sleeping in is a gift from God. So, you know, they come in before the sun's up and they wake you up and they don't let you go back to bed and, and your grind begins, right? You get up, get dressed, you go to work, you're fighting fires all day, then you're taking care of kids, you're cooking, cleaning, working on the house, fixing your car, running errands, eating dinner, then you take a breath and then you go to sleep and then again at like, I don't know, 3.30 in the morning your kids come and wake you up or your alarm goes off. It's the daily grind. One philosopher said this about the daily grind. He said, you know, the problem with life is that it's so daily, right? The problem with life is that it's so daily. So the title of today's teaching is When the Gospel Meets the Grind because the gospel, right, this is the life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. And the good news for you and I is that not only does it save our soul, but it speaks to every area of our lives, even down to the things that you and I face and deal with every day, like work and family. Specifically, those are what we're going to be talking about. So for the past several weeks, as Jeff mentioned, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians, and we are going through this uh, book verse by verse, precept by precept, and we're letting God's word speak to us. And here, uh, the what we've seen in the first half of Ephesians, what we saw is a lot of heavy doctrine, a lot of theology, right? A lot of uh, big concepts, right? We talked about grace and the, the cross and we talked about redemption and union with Christ and who we are in Christ. And then we get into the second half of the book, right? Which is chapters 4, 5, and 6. And that includes the part we're studying today. And that is incredibly practical. It's extremely practical. And that is because of this. And I hope you get this. What it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to be theologically driven. To be theologically driven. It means that the theology and the doctrine that we study, right? The stuff about the Trinity and the cross and atonement and grace and redemption, right? These aren't just abstract ideas that we pontificate about or hypothesize about. These are things which have a direct impact on how we live practically in every area of our lives. And that's why here at Whitefields we put such a big emphasis on studying the Word of God because we believe that the doctrine of the Bible, the great truths about God that are revealed to us in his word, these change the way that we live our lives, right? So to be a Christian means to be theologically driven. It means that in every area of your life, you bring in the truth of the gospel and it affects the way that you live. It affects how you do things practically. Today we're going to look at two of these very important areas of our lives that the gospel affects, specifically family 
and work, right? And we're going to look how Jesus changes these areas of our lives. So in uh, chapter 6 here, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to talk about family. And then in verses 5 through 9, we're going to talk about work. And, and here in this letter, Paul speaks to four groups of people directly. First, he speaks to children in verses 1 through 3. He speaks to fathers in verse 4. He speaks to employees in verses 5 through 8. And he speaks to bosses or employers in verse 9. All of us fall into one of these categories. Most of us fall into more than one of these categories. Some of you probably even fit into all of these categories. But the point is that there's something here for everybody. There's something that speaks directly to every single one of us here today. And here's what I want you to take away. Here's the big idea for you note takers is this. Your daily grind is your opportunity to serve God and do his work every day. Let me say that again. Your daily grind is your opportunity to serve God and do his work every day. Okay? Let's uh, begin by reading in verses 1 through 3 as Paul speaks to children. It says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And the promise is that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So children are told to do two things. They're told to obey their parents and honor their parents. What's the difference between the two? The difference is this, that obedience has limits, right? There are limits on obedience, but honor is always applicable, always applies. Parent, or children should obey their parents, right? That's what pleases the Lord. That's what we read here. But, of course, we know that if a parent is telling their child to do something which is sinful or harmful to that child or to other people, then yes, obedience has its limits. Furthermore, another limit that this obedience has is, is this. When a, a person gets married, right? The Bible says that they leave their father and mother and they cleave to their spouse. And essentially what that means is that, you know, it says the two become one. What that means is they leave their separate family units and they form a new family unit as husband and wife. And, and they are husband and wife, they're one, and now they make decisions together. But the thing is this, even though obedience has limits, honor always applies. You always need to honor your parents. In fact, that's what the Ten Commandments says. Honor your father and mother. You never stop honoring your parents. No matter who you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, you always honor your parents. No matter what your parents are like, even if they don't deserve it, in your opinion, if they don't deserve your honor, you honor them. And what does it mean to honor your parents? It means to treat them with respect. And it means to find practical ways to show them that you respect them, that you honor them. And, and you do that whether they deserve it or not. And you know, of course, again, Jesus is our greatest example of what it means to honor your parents. He honored both his earthly parents and he honored his heavenly father all the way through his life. We move on to the next section. Paul here speaks to fathers in verse 4. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now you can't help but notice here that Paul speaks to fathers. He doesn't speak to parents. He doesn't speak to fathers and mothers. He's speaking specifically to fathers. And I think there are a few very important reasons for that. And I'll tell you what those are. In that culture, like in our culture, raising children was viewed as 
women's work, right? That's what uh, women do. Men, they would go out and they would work, provide for the family. But the, le the, the home stuff, raising the kids, was left on mom, right? But what Paul is saying is something totally different than what culture says, totally new. It's revolutionary. He says, dads, I want you to be actively involved in raising your kids. Dads, you need to be present. You need to be there. You need to be engaging your kids and actively taking part in raising them up. Uh, here's a story for you. At one day at show and tell at an elementary school in the first grade, all the children were taking turns doing uh, show and tell about their dads, right? And so each child would bring up something and they would talk about their dad. So the first child stands up and says, well, I brought a dollar bill to show because my dad is a bank president. Everybody, very nice, everybody's impressed. Next child stands up and says, I, bought, I brought a football because my dad is a professional football player. Another child stands up and says, well, I brought a toy boat because my dad is very rich and we own a boat and a lot of other stuff, right? Of course, everyone's very impressed. And finally, one little girl stands up she walks up front and as she walks up there it's very obvious to everyone that this little girl has nothing in her hands, right? And the teacher, other people in the class, they begin thinking, well what kind of father must this girl have that she has nothing in her hands to show for show and tell? So the little girl stands up there and she says, my dad is here actually, he's right over there, you know? And, and uh, that's a novel idea. And the question is, dad, are you present? Dad, are you here? Or is it just something they say, my dad does this, my dad does that, or do they say, my dad is here, right? That makes all the difference. Give them the gift of your presence. Because dad, God is calling men, us, he's calling us to lead the way in bringing our kids to the Lord. To be brought up in the Lord. It means to make them ready to stand on their own two feet. To be successful as independent adults. But that applies spiritually as well. As we raise up our children in the Lord, our goal is that our kids would grow up to walk with the Lord on their own, to have their own relationship with God. So they're not dependent on us. So they're not on life support spiritually. We want to set them free and raise them up so they can be independent and walk with the Lord. Specifically, dads, our calling, this is a calling from God, is to bring up our kids in the Lord. And there are two important factors that it says here about how we are to do that. Along with our presence, we are also asked to give them discipline and instruction. Discipline and instruction, that's so important that there be both. Dad, here's the deal. You are called to be dad the family pastor. That's your title. That's your role as a Christian dad. You are dad the family pastor. Raising up your kids in the Lord, that's on you. That's a responsibility that's placed on your shoulders to make sure that you are the one leading the way, making sure your kids are raised up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's what discipline means. It doesn't just mean correcting wrong behavior. Sometimes that's all we think of when we think of discipline, correcting wrong behavior. Discipline also means conditioning for right behavior, right? You're conditioning them to do the right things. It means that you teach them spiritual 
discipline, right? Dad, you lead the way in teaching your kids to pray. You lead the way in teaching your kids to read the Word of God. You, you lead the way in teaching your kids to serve other people and serve God by serving others. You lead the way in saying, kids, we're going to be at church. We're going to be in fellowship. We're going to worship together as a family. It should never be your wife dragging you to church. It should be you packing the kids in the car and saying, all right, guys, we're going to worship. We're going to serve. We're going to do this. We're going to read the word. We're going to pray. You know, the statistics are astounding, actually, about what a difference it makes when fathers lead their homes spiritually. What a difference it makes in the lives of their children, not just in their spiritual walk, but in their general well-being, how they grow up and how successful they are as independent adults. It makes a world of difference. And the fact is also that families suffer, everybody suffers when dad doesn't fill this role that he's called to in the word. So dads, don't just correct your kids when they do stuff that's wrong, but teach them what's right. Condition them, discipline them spiritually. Lead your family spiritually. Proverbs 13, 24 says this. The one who spares the rod hates his child. If you spare discipline, you hate your child. But the one who loves his child is diligent in disciplining him. Children need discipline, they need boundaries, and they need to learn at a young age that there are consequences for actions, right? To be successful adults, you have to have self-control. Here's what the Proverbs say about self-control. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls, right? Nothing good there. But in disciplining your children, here's the other thing it tells us. Don't provoke your children to anger. Other translations say don't exasperate them, right? Some dads, they, they take this idea of I'm the disciplinarian and they take it way to an extreme, right? And they have unreasonably harsh demands. They, they abuse their authority over their children. They'll nag at them, even humiliate them. And, and here's what the Bible says. Fathers, you know, don't abuse your children in the name of discipline. Don't say I'm, I'm the disciplinarian and then take it to this extreme where you're so heavy-handed that your kids end up hating your guts and becoming bitter against you and even worse many times bitter against God, right? He says discipline them out of love for them because you don't want them to grow up embittered against you. You don't want them to grow up embittered against God. Make sure that whenever you discipline them, there's no doubt in their mind that you love them, right? That discipline is because you care about them. So, uh, Dad, here's another thing. Don't just discipline them, but instruct them. That's what it says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you don't just discipline, you also instruct. Make sure you're actively involved in teaching your kids about the Lord. This is what God said to the parents in the book of Deuteronomy, right? They, this is a time when Israel was about to enter into a new stage in their history, where they're about to enter into the promised land. And, uh, and here's what God said to parents at that time. He said this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The idea was all the time, right? As you go about your life, as you're 
dealing with your kids and, and eating dinner together and traveling together, right? Parents, teach your kids about God. You may never be that evangelist who preaches to tens of thousands of people in stadiums, but here's what you do have. You have a little crowd of people, of little people who hang on your every word, man. They think that what you say to them is pure gold, right? They're just waiting for you to speak to them. They trust and they believe everything you say. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, right? And uh, they're listening. They are a perfect audience. Teach them to trust God. Teach them to talk to God. Teach them to know God. Teach them to love God, right? If you do, if you, you want to do great things for God? Is that what you want for your life to have meaning and purpose? Well, start here. Start with that little crowd of people at your house. And let the word of God just be a constant topic of conversation in your home. As you eat dinner, as you drive in the car, as you walk to school, things like that. Dad, bring up your kids in the Lord. Discipline them and instruct them. They desperately need both the discipline and the instruction. And you need to lead the way on that. Okay? They need it from mom too. Mom, you know that your job is important, but here's the deal. Here, here's why it specifically speaks to moms. I want you to see this. And here's why. It's not about, or I'm sorry, it specifically speaks to dad. It's not about diminishing mom's role in the family. Here's what it's about. The point is this. The gospel leads us to live in a way that is countercultural. You know that? The gospel leads us to live in a way that's countercultural. What he's saying here to dads? Revolutionary, countercultural, different, right? Different than what everybody else is doing. And it should be. And it should be that way in our lives. That as we raise up our kids in the Lord, our family life looks different than the people who don't know the Lord. You know, for dads to take the lead as spiritual leaders in the family, that is countercultural. And the point is this. When Jesus comes into your life, it doesn't just give you good vibrations, right? It doesn't just give you good feelings inside, right? And, and peace and joy inside. But here's what it does. It changes your life on the outside too. It changes from the inside out. It changes the way that you do things, the way that you approach things. So Jesus changes the way that you live. I remember when I became a Christian, I was 16 years old. And I would say this, I... Looking back, I don't think I was a terrible kid, but I know that I was not a uh, straight-laced, respectful kid at all. I was, uh, I was not respectful. I was not straight-laced. And, and for me, when I came to understand the gospel, it completely changed my life. It changed how I did in school. I started doing better in school, you know, because as I started walking with the Lord, the way I spent my time changed, right? And one of the other things that changed is it changed my relationship with my parents, I became more respectful. I became more obedient because I was learning, you know, how much God loves me, how much he's done for me, and it changed the way that I lived. And the second thing I want you to see here, why it speaks specifically to dads, it's telling you this, dad, you have a daily grind. Mom, you too. But here's the deal. Your daily grind, is what I said earlier, is your opportunity every day to serve God and do his work. Your opportunity every day to serve God and do his work. Now let's talk for a second about work, right? Here's what it says in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. 
rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters do the same. Stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Some of your translations will say here, slaves, right? Or slave, yeah, it speaks of slavery. Now, what I want you to see here, because a lot of people, they hear this word slavery, and they're like, whoa, you get hung up on that, right? We get tripped up on it because it's almost like the Bible here is encouraging slaves to obey their masters rather than the Bible actually condemning the practice of slavery. And I think most of us in here would agree, slavery not good, right? Uh, I'm reading the Bible here from the ESV translation and it uses the word bondservants rather than slaves. I personally prefer that because, and, and here's why, not just because it sounds nicer, but because what we're talking about here with slavery in the Roman Empire is completely different than slavery as it was experienced in the United States or in the Caribbean or in other, you know, British colonies, French colonies around the world. Um, we need to understand that what's being spoken of, these people are more like household servants, right? Kind of like maids, butlers. Now, they weren't totally free, but uh, slavery was a different thing at that time. Here are a couple things you need to know about slavery in the Roman Empire versus slavery in the United States. Okay, number one, slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race, right? It wasn't about one race enslaving people of another race or treating them as subhuman or a lower class. So first of all, it wasn't based on race. Secondly, it was not for a lifetime, right? It was for a specific amount of time. And children who were born in slavery did not automatically become slaves themselves. So that's also different. Usually, slavery was for a, number, a certain number of years. It's more like what we would consider a contractual agreement, right? It'd be for like paying off debt, obviously. But it would also be like, hey, I need a job and... I need a place to live, and so I'll become your servant, and you feed me and take care of me. It was a contractual agreement. And generally, the rule was a person could not be a slave after age 30. So you reach 30, it's your birthday, happy birthday, you get to go free. Uh, thirdly, slaves in the Roman Empire had the same opportunities for education and lifestyle as their owners. And they, they were never ever considered historically a, uh, a separate group in society, right? There was never a call for slaves of the world unite and rise up in the Roman Empire. Fourthly, uh, and this is the last one, rather than avoiding slavery, many people willingly gave themselves into slavery for job security. Because what you got to know at that time, there's no Medicare, right? There's no uh, welfare. There's no unemployment benefits. So if you're an unemployed person, you got to eat somehow. You got to feed your family. So slavery was actually considered a viable option for job security because they take care of your family. You get health care. You get, uh, you know, they're going to feed you. They're going to take care of you for a certain number of years. You have security. So all this just goes to say that when we use the word bondservant, 
It's a better word to use because what we're talking about here is not the same as the slavery that was experienced here in the United States. Maybe you guys have read uh, in the New Testament there's a short epistle called Philemon. It's a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to a man named Philemon who was a wealthy man and he wrote it about this man named Onesimus, right? Now Onesimus was a bondservant who had run away from Philemon. He had gone off and Onesimus had essentially broken his agreement, his contract with Philemon. He ducked out and he ran off to Rome, right? Off to the big city. Well, it just so happens that this man, Onesimus, this escaped servant, he meets some Christians in Rome. He gets saved. Paul the Apostle's in Rome. They say, hey, you know, check this out. This uh, escaped servant, he's, um, he got saved. Paul meets him and says, Hey, looks like, you know, I actually know that guy who you used to work for, right? I know Philemon. So he writes Philemon this letter. He says, you're never going to guess who I ran into in Rome, right? It's, it's Onesimus, your, your former servant. And he says, he encourages him in this letter. He says, I encourage you, forgive him and receive him back as a brother. So essentially, if you don't understand the historical context of, of what bond servanthood was, it almost seems like the Bible's encouraging the practice of slavery. And if you only know slavery as we know it here in the United States, you think, well, how could the Bible support that? That's a terrible practice to treat somebody like an animal or like a piece of furniture. But here's, here's an interesting thing to consider. The Bible does actually condemn the practice of slavery as it was practiced here in the United States. Uh, if you're familiar with history, you know that it was the evangelical Christians who led the abolition movement, right? The movement to abolish slavery. Uh, here's what the Bible says uh, in 1 Timothy Paul is writing. This is the same guy who wrote to Philemon, same guy who's writing here to bondservants. And he writes this in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. He says, we know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And he goes on this long list of who are the unrighteous, right? He says people who strike their mothers and fathers, the ungodly, right? The rebellious, the sinful, unholy, irreligious. And then he adds this word, enslavers, right? In some of your translations, it will say um, slave traders. Now, what that refers to is people who were enslaving other people. In a sense, they were, they were kidnapping people and forcing them into forced labor, right? That's what happened here in the United States. That's what happened in the Caribbean with slavery. They treated people as subhuman. These people were not free. They didn't have any rights. And, uh, and the Bible does condemn that as evil. And when Christians saw that happening in, in centuries gone by, they looked at that and they said, that is wrong. The Bible totally condemns that. And God's word teaches that all people, no matter what race, no matter what social class, all people are created in the image of God and they have intrinsic value. Nobody should ever be owned or oppressed by another person. It's wrong, it's evil, and we should stand up against it. So here in Ephesians, as we talk about bond servants, all that goes to say this, when we talk about it, these are the equivalent of household servants. And the way that this all applies to us is, this is essentially instructions for bosses and employees. So let's think of it in those terms. All of us in here 
are either a boss or an employee or you're self-employed in which then I guess you just have to have a split personality. So you have people under you, you have people who you are over, you have somebody you answer to, you have people who answer to you. There, there's something we're told here and that is this. This is really radical what it says here about how to think about work and that's this. All work is a divine calling, right? All work is a divine calling. If you were to go into a Christian bookstore, right, or if, uh, if you came to church here and we had a book on the back table and the title of the book was Called to Serve the Lord, what would you imagine that that book was about? You'd probably imagine, most of us would automatically assume this is a book about a pastor or about a missionary or somebody who left their vocation, right, and started a ministry. But most of us think when we think about serving the Lord, we don't think farming right we don't think accounting right serving the Lord right we think about serving the Lord we don't think pushing a broom we don't think engineering we don't think plumbing right I've talked to many people over the years who've told me man I wish I could just quit my job and serve the Lord and I say you should serve the Lord you should serve him full time but you don't have to quit your job to do that you need to have a, a biblical perspective on what work is and they said well you know what I do for a living nobody's getting saved you know I'm working for my boss I'm just making money I'm not making an impact for God's kingdom well pay attention here to what the Bible's saying because it's actually very profound for how we think about work first of all remember who is Paul speaking to He's speaking to servants, right? These are like the lowest on the totem pole. You are the bottom. You're not even on the corporate ladder, right? You're just like looking at the corporate ladder from the bottom. And he tells these people, right, the lowest of the low, he says, what you do, it is a calling from God. Your work, that cleaning you do, that washing dishes, that is a calling from God. He says, you aren't working for your boss. You're working for God. He's the one who called you to do that work. You are serving the Lord every day when you work. Now how can that be? Think about this. Martin Luther explained it very well. He said this, when you get to that place in the Lord's Prayer, right, what does Jesus teach us to pray? He says, give us this day our daily bread. You're asking God to feed you and take care of you and your family every single day. And in Psalm 145, it says that God feeds all his creatures. God feeds his creatures and when we sit down to a meal and we're with our families right we, we thank God for feeding us and providing for us but how does God feed us does he just make it appear on our table does he just make it sprout out from the ground and we just go pick up our pot roast from our backyard every day right how does that bread get to your table how about the milk how about the meat it doesn't just appear out of nowhere it doesn't just sprout out of the ground uh, no, someone has to plant that. Someone has to harvest that, right? Or for you gluten-free people, somebody's got to plant the quinoa that you eat every day, right? You milk the cow or, again, for you people, somebody has to milk all those almonds or milk all those uh, soybeans that you're drinking, right? I don't even know how they do that, but somebody does it, right? And, uh, you know, there are farmers, there are dairy workers, there are soybean milkers, right? There are people who prepare your food and transport it, and there are grocers who sell it to you, right? Such menial tasks, right? The grocer, is he serving the Lord? How about, how about the farmer, right? 
How about the, you know, dairy worker? Such menial tasks, right? Too bad those people can't quit their jobs and do God's work, right? Such basic everyday work, but here's the point. They are doing God's work because it's God's work to feed you and he feeds you through the work of them. In other words, he delegates the task of feeding you to those people. Such menial jobs, but they're actually doing the work of God. And you could go down the line, right? God, protect me. Okay, he does protect you in, through other people. So God uses other people's work to provide for you and take care of you and answer your prayers. Do you see that? In other words, you can be doing the work of God by doing your work. In other words, God takes care of us through other people. All work is God's way of meeting needs, providing, and blessing through the work of other people. And what that means for you and I as we go to work this week, as we consider Labor Day, is that each of us can serve the Lord full-time in the field that we already work in. You can be a teacher, you can be a security guard, an engineer, a waiter, an accountant, and you can do your work with the knowledge that what you are doing is a divine calling, that you are fulfilling a calling on your life, that you are doing the work of God, that you are being the hands and feet of God, that he is blessing other people, serving other people through your work. Again, who are we talking about here? You might say, yeah, I get how God works through doctors. Well, who's he talking to? Again, he's talking to household servants. Their job is to sweep and clean. And he tells them, do your work with your whole heart. That cleaning you do, do it with your whole heart as for the Lord and not for men. He tells them here, obey your bosses. If you have a boss and they tell you to do something, obey them, right? In our culture today, obe obedience, obey, that's like a bad word, right? We hear that and we're like, no, not going to do that. This is the American West, right? Everybody's got a little cowboy in them, a little rebel who says, no way. We like the idea of our boss suggesting that we do things, and then we kind of consider, yeah, maybe I could do that, and then we do it if we feel like it, right? We like suggestions, but we hate this word obedience in our culture. But here's the thing. God's word speaks to that, and it says, look, it's important. It's healthy for you to respect authority. And some people say, you know, well, I do respect authority. I respect God. He's the only authority I respect. Well, to that person, God would say, Great, I'm glad you respect me. Now I'm telling you to obey me by obeying your boss. Obey me by obeying the authorities I place in your life. Obey me by, or honor me by honoring them, right? Bosses, it says, don't abuse your authority. Don't be harsh with your employees. Treat them with dignity and respect. Paul also says this, don't only work hard when somebody's looking over your shoulder, right? Work hard all the time because your heavenly father, your heavenly boss is always present, right? Do your work wholeheartedly as for the Lord and not for others. Consider your work a way that you can serve God and be used by God to do his work in the world. Elizabeth Elliot, she said this to a group of housewives. She was speaking to housewives and uh, she had this, uh, she said this about the idea that the work of housewives is insignificant and menial. She said this, what is the first image we have of God in the Bible? It's the image of God bringing order out of chaos. 
Now think about cleaning your house. Wiping counters, mopping, dusting. She said, maybe you do it yourself. Maybe you pay somebody to do it. But here's the thing. If nobody does it, then you are going to die. Right? Think about that. If nobody cleans your house ever, you are going to die. You ever seen that show Hoarders, right? You know what I'm talking about. Those people, they're almost dying in their house because nobody's cleaning. It won't happen right away, but eventually if you don't clean your house, you will die, right? So when you clean your house, you are creating space for life, right? You are reflecting God. You are bringing order out of chaos. And again, that reminds us of the point here, and that is this. All work reflects God. There is no work that is unimportant. Work is a calling from God, right? Work is important. God is a worker. The first image we get of God, right? He's bringing order out of chaos. Next, what do we see? He has his hands in the dirt and he's forming something. He's creating, he's making. He teaches, he builds. That's the kind of God we have and we reflect him as we work. So our work is a way for us to worship God by reflecting him. And if you have that mentality, if you view your work as worship, then guess what? You're not just going to do it for your paycheck. You're not just going to do it when your boss is looking over your shoulder. You're going to do it with the knowledge that you're serving God by doing the work he's given you. It's an opportunity for God to provide for others through your work. I believe that Christians should be known as the best workers and the best bosses in town. When I pastored in Hungary... Uh, I remember two occasions specifically when I got phone calls from business owners in the community there and they were calling me and telling me that they had employed people from our church and they wanted to know if we had anybody else in our congregation who was looking for a job because they had openings. Because they liked employing our people because they were trustworthy, they were hardworking, and they were honest, they were reliable. And I love that. I love seeing that. And I hope that in your workplace there are two things that people know about you. First of all, I hope that people know that you're a Christian. I think that people should know that about you in your workplace. And secondly, I hope that it's known about you that you are hardworking and reliable. And you know why? Because you are doing your work as service unto the Lord with all your heart. Some people do work begrudgingly right? Other people go to the other extreme, right? They will neglect things that are important to God because they are so caught up in their work. They're, they're so driven to uh, accomplish and succeed. But the gospel gives us a way that is counter-cultural when it comes to work. Once, once we've come to know God's love for us, the fact that we're saved and that heaven awaits us, then we view our work in a completely different way. Our work is not our justification. Some people, that's what their work is all about. It's their meaning for existence, their justification. But here's what the gospel says. You are justified not by what you do, but you are justified in Christ. And secondly, our work is not something that we just do for a paycheck. It's a way that we can serve the Lord. It's a way that we can be used by God in other people's lives every single day. All of us have a daily grind. Family, work, demands, expectations, but I encourage you, see those things, that daily grind, see it as your opportunity every day to serve God, to partner with him, to do his work. In your home, at your workplace, and I encourage you, be theologically driven. Allow the gospel to shape every aspect of your life, every part of it, from your family to how you work. Amen? Let's stand and pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who works on our behalf. Lord, we want to be people who work for you. Lord, we want, in whatever it is, the job that you've given us, Lord, we thank you for that opportunity to provide for our families, to be part of your work of providing for other people. Lord, we thank you for the families you've given us. We thank you for the families here in our church. And we pray for our kids, Lord, that they would grow up to know you, to walk with you. And we pray for all the dads here, Lord. Help us to do our part in leading our families spiritually. Lord, help us to discipline them and instruct them in the Lord that they might grow up to walk with you. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this great gospel. Lord, we we again this morning, we want to give our hearts to you. And as we sing these next few songs, Lord, uh, we want to come and take communion and remember what you've done for us on the cross. We want to dedicate ourselves to you again and anew this morning. That we might know you, that we might walk with you, that we might be used by you in this world for your mission. Lord, we ask that you would do all those things in our heart this morning. And we give this further sacrifice of worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.